Good to see everybody here today. So glad you're worshiping with us. And uh, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Psalm 1. We're going to be skipping around a good bit today. Uh, we're going to skip around a fair amount uh, because we're going to wrap up a two-part series of Becoming Friends with God. I was going to ask if we remembered what last week's lesson was about, but I let the cat out of the bag and spoiled the first answer to the question. What does it mean to become friends with God? We discovered last week that God wants to be friends with you, which is a really amazing thing. Uh, the high king of heaven takes care of every hurdle uh, that's there in the relationship, and he moves toward you with outstretched arms of love and fellowship, and he has made a way of quenching his wrath so that he can reach out to you in friendship. The problem is that we tend to run, don't we? Does anybody remember what Adam and Eve did after they sinned? Remember what they did? They hid. They hid from each other, didn't they? They covered themselves, and they hid from each other, and then they hid from God. And that's what we do when we're sinners before a holy God. We run. We run from God. So much so that Paul says that no man seeks after God. No, not even one. We're all estranged from God. We run from God. But God moves toward us. God went looking for the man and the woman in the garden, and he equally comes looking with us, and he wants to befriend us. He wants to speak with us. He wants to abide with us. It's really amazing that God wants to be our friend. So if you'd like to listen to the rest of that, I'm sure it'll be up online and you can listen to the first part of that series next week. But by way of introduction, let's meditate on something very quickly. For those of you who had traditional wedding vows, by the way, Benjamin, would you mind shutting that door right back here? Thank you. For those of you who had traditional wedding vows, let's, let's try to recall some of the wedding vows that we made. Uh, if, if you wrote your own vows, sorry, um, though I would love for you to help us, um, we're not going to do those here. Uh, but if you had sort of the traditional wedding vows, what were some of the things that you repeated before God and witness? Till death do you part. There you go. That's a good one. That's, in fact, I think that's the closing line, isn't it? I'm, I've done a few wedding ceremonies. That's one of the till death do us part. That's, that's a big one. Yes, what else? In sickness and in health. Yes, what else? To love and to cherish. That's right, to love and cherish. What else? To have and to hold. And when you're standing right next to the bride and groom, you can see that they really want to hold each other. And they're, uh, they're so in love with each other. And it's, it's very good. Um, it's very good to see that. What else? There's, there's another one. For richer, for poorer, sickness and in health. What else? There's one more missing. Um, that's part. That hasn't been in the traditional ones I've done, but that's close. You're very close. There are different variations, so maybe that's one of the variations. Obey. I. They haven't yet. Do I have? I have love and honor. Honor. So uh, that that's that's how I say. What else? There's there's one we're missing. Oh, Daniel got it. Say it nice and loud. Forsaking 
all others, forsaking all others. Okay? Let me ask you a question. You guys know my wife. You love my wife. She's an awesome lady. Imagine if on our wedding day, we were standing at the altar, and it came to the part where I say, forsaking all others. And I looked at the preacher, and I looked at Danielle, and then I looked at one of the bridesmaids, and then I looked back at Danielle, and I said, does forsaking all others include her? Danielle, what would you have said in that moment? (laughs) Why? Just that one little thing? I can say yes to all the others, but just that one little thing? Well, why is that? And obviously, she, she would be in love. Why is that? Because when it comes to marriage, we expect exclusivity, don't we? And exclusivity is part of the deal. Don't get married unless you intend for it to be exclusive. Okay? And if you're not prepared for that when you come to the altar, you are not ready to come to the altar. We embrace that that's what it means in other social circumstances with marriage. If you were to go, for example, uh, my dad and I went to a college football game yesterday. We went and watched the youths play, uh, play UCLA. Imagine telling a diehard youth fan, you know, the, the fella that was dressed head to toe in red face paint the whole nine yards. If I told him, you know, I, I like to root for both BYU and Utah, what would he say to me? He would say, no, nope, can't do it. <laughs> you got to choose one or the other, buddy. Can't be both red and blue. In other social circumstances, we understand exclusivity. How much more should we expect it then when we come to God? If we're going to be friends with God, that demands exclusivity. And just as we just as we expect it when it comes to marriage or other social compacts, we should expect it with God. And that leads us to our first principle. We're going to have three principles today. Basically, it's God wants to be your friend. God wants to befriend you. However, friendship with God means this. Okay? Friendship with God means this. And there's there's three of these. First thing. Friendship with God means excluding all that is anti-God. Friendship with God means excluding all that is anti-God. Okay? That's a carefully worded statement. If you want God, if you want to be friends with God, that by definition means you're going to exclude that which is anti-God. Now, God understands that when he comes to us and befriends us, we're filled to the brim with anti-God. So sanctification is the process of God getting that anti-God out of our lives. And as God brings it to our attention, sometimes it's much more obvious than others. But as he brings it to our attention, he expects us to move away from it. Now I've worded anti-God very specifically because anti-God is not always 180 degrees opposite of God. There's clear examples of God and error, God and ant- God and the devil, for example. There, there, are, there are these polar extremes. But sometimes the most devious points of anti-God are when they're just 
one degree off of truth. They're close but not there. And those are the points of anti-God that take a little longer for us to see. Sometimes you'll have a life that runs almost parallel to the purposes of God. But over time, they're not. And over time, they just diverge and go away. And those are the sorts of things that God wants us to run from. Let me, let me prove to you from the Bible. I had to turn to Psalm 1. Let me prove to you from the Bible that friendship with God means excluding all that is anti-God. I had to turn to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. We pointed this out before, but the first psalm doesn't have a number on it, actually. We have a number on it because that's what um, people did at one point. But when the Hebrew uh, scribes compiled these, they left a number off of this. This is, in a sense, the preface. This is the introduction. This is the one that says, hey, if you want to understand the other 150 psalms, this is the one you got to have. This is the gateway to all the other psalms. And what does it say? It begins, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in this way, who doesn't stand, who doesn't sit. Notice to the progression. There is walking past, there is standing in place, and there is sitting. That is the progression that sin often takes. You walk by and you, you catch something, as it were, out of the corner of your eye, and you, you don't think much of it, and you move on, but it catches in your mind. The next time you stop and you look a while, and the next thing you know, before long, you're sitting down in the middle of it. The compromise has just caught up to you. And next thing you know, you're sitting in the middle of scoffers. Notice the progression, too, of the wicked, then sinners, then scoffers. That, too, is a progression, because wicked just uh, is, a, is a way of saying uh, twisted. Not twisted, we will use the word, man, that's twisted, as like the embodiment of evil. But this is simply just a little bit out of truth. It's just a little out of truth. When I have a piece of woodworking equipment, that gets the tiniest little bit out of truth, that's a problem. Because everything you do from that point forward is off. And sometimes it's very challenging to bring back into calibration something that's out. It's hard to bring it back true. That's, that's the idea. This is off. Off. And then a sinner is a person who's acting out on that twistedness. They're thoughts and meditations have become actions. And then a scoffer is one who's not only acting it out, he's proclaiming it to be the right and good way. They've gone from imagination to action to out and out, utter rebellion against God. And God's people can walk by, can stop and observe, and can sit and take it. And God says that blessed is the man who doesn't yield to that. But he is a man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. And what does God say? He'll be like a tree planted by the streams of water. Its fruit will bear in its season. Its leaves will not wither. In Psalm 23, we're told that God takes this sort of person and prepares a table for him in the presence of his enemies. This is a friendship, a, 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 a pouring on of blessing and help. When people say, okay, God, I'm with you, 
Therefore, I'm actively excluding all that is against you. Or let's, if you want to turn there, turn to James 4.4. 4. I'll quote James 4.4. 4. Since you're already in Psalms, why don't you go to Psalm, 120, Psalm 119. Go to Psalm 119 since you're already there, and I'll read you James 4.4. 4. James 4.4 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And we have to define carefully that word world. The word world in the New Testament is used in many different senses. We're told that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That, when it's used that way, it refers to the world of people. But when James or John, John refers to this often, when he refers to the world in this way, they're referring to a system of thinking, a way of thinking, a philosophy. This word world was very popular in Greek literature at the time for meaning the what we would say is the ethos of a culture. There's a, a way of thinking that gets people along. And much of it is anti-God. And to want to cozy up next to that and befriend it, make friends with it, and take advantage of it, you actually make yourself enemies with God. Because again, the world system, the world's way of thinking, is anti-God. And God excludes all that is anti-God. And to be friends with God means we exclude all that is anti-God. And far too often, Christians think that they can befriend the world and cozy up to the world and take advantage even of the world. But the world is not so easily taken advantage of. The world is shrewd. The world will let you think it's taking advantage of it, but it will soon turn the tables and take advantage of you. God says, if you're going to pursue me, you need to pursue me exclusively. And to, to buddy up to and befriend the world is enmity with me. The word enmity is fancy word for hate. Now God isn't saying that in the sense that we use it, as in uh, red-faced, temperamental hate. This is more like a settled, resolute conviction against. You would say, for example, if you were a soldier in World War II, that you hated Nazi Germany and what it stood for and what it did. Well, you saw the effects of it, and there's a settled disposition against it. And that's what God is saying. When it comes to the world, I am in a settled position against it. I hate all that it does to people. I want to be your friend, but you have to know that to be my friend, you have to embody my values and exclude all that is anti-me. So, I had you turn to Psalm 119. Turn down to Psalm, to verse 128. Psalm 19 is the longest chapter in the Bible, of course. And there, Paul, there, uh, David says rather. He says, "Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I consider all your precepts to be right." and I hate every false way. I consider all your precepts to be right, and I hate every false way. I was having a 
religious conversation with a gentleman this week. He was attempting to tell me that whether his religion or mine, the truth didn't really matter. It didn't really matter, practically speaking, which one was true or more true or less true. That practically speaking, it just didn't count for much. And I took great issue with that. I didn't yell or scream or pound <laughs> my fist on the table. I said, well, then what do you do with Jesus's words? Those who worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. Or what do you do with, and I quoted this verse, Psalm 119.28, I consider all your precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Or that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the truth, I'm the embodiment of truth and the light. God is a God of truth. In him is light. In, his, in him is light, and there is no darkness or variation at all. God is a God of truth, and he expects his people, if they befriend him, to exclude all that is untrue about him or anti God. So, whether it's the world system, whether it's behavior, whether it's false teachings about God himself. All of those things we have to turn from as we turn to our relationship with God. Now you see, it's very important that we, we understand this because God is not expecting us to turn from something to nothing. Okay? What does God say is going to happen to this world in the end? What's going to happen to this world in the end? It's going to be burned up. It's going to be destroyed by fire. And how long does God last? Forever. He's eternal. How rich is God? How great is God? How powerful is God? God isn't asking you to turn from something to nothing. He's asking you to turn from nothing to everything. He's asking you to turn from the promise of destruction and end, nothing, to everything. And that's the deal he's putting on the table. All right, principle number two. Do we have any questions about principle number one? There might be one burning question you have. I'll say it for you. Aren't we supposed to love the world? Aren't we supposed to try to win the world? If that's your question, that's a great question. I plan to answer it at the end. Okay? But other than that question... Any questions about that first part? Yes, Pam. To be honest, I'm not sure. And once I started quoting Bible verse after Bible verse, he backed off of that and said he didn't mean what he preached. And I don't know why that was either. Others. Okay, moving on. Principle number two. If we are to love God to the exclusion of anti-God, principle number two, we have to learn to recognize anti-God. And anti-God is described in the Bible as fools and folly. Okay? So, let me 
friends of God learn to identify fools in their folly. That's our second principle. Friends of God learn to recognize fools in their folly. Because fools and folly are anti-God. Does that make sense? If we're to resist all that's anti-God and turn from it, how would we know what it looks like when it comes to us? The Bible describes it as folly, and folly is the verb of a fool. When we learn to recognize both of those and avoid them. Um, Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1 both say this. The fool says there is no God. Okay? The fool says there is no God. So, first things first, if you want to recognize fools and folly, the first thing that's an easy spot is if they deny the existence of God or any of his practical use in the world, that is foolishness and folly and is best avoided. In fact, we're commanded to avoid it and just go the other way. Fools and folly are anti-God, for foolishness and folly says there is no God. Proverbs 12.15 says that fools are unteachable. And in Proverbs 18.2, it says they try to determine their own moral path. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. You can't tell him anything. He says, he says he's always right, and it's the idea of moral right. That's Proverbs 18.2. You, you talk to this person, and he says, well, I just feel like it's this way, or, well, from my perspective, it goes like this. It just so happens that his feelings or his perspective are anti-God and what God says in the Bible, and that's foolishness. He's trying to, this person, when they do that, what they're, they're doing is they're, they're setting up their own moral standards. And God says that that is anti-me. Fools are also unteachable. Solomon says many times, and Proverbs 12, 15 is one example, that stripes are for the back of a fool, and he never seems to learn his own way. Solomon says, dogs return to the vomit. So a fool just keeps repeating the same mistakes over and again. You can't teach them. They don't want to be taught. Proverbs 7, 14. Fools use religious talk for temptation. Fools use religious sounding talk for temptation. In the case of Proverbs 7, they're using religious talk for sexual temptation. But I've seen fools use religious talk as a, as a cover for greed or as a cover for pride. There's all sorts of ways that we use religious talk to cover what we really want to do. And so... But that's what fools do. They they are very good at using religious talk to cover their to cover themselves. Proverbs ten eighteen. Fools slander others with their words. Fools slander others. We need to be very careful, even if a person claims to be a Christian. But it always seems like their Christian leaders can never do anything right, or the Christian people in their congregation are are dumb or stupid or in some way off. Nothing ever seems to please them. They resort to it's teasing at first and needling, and then it resorts to out-and-out 
assault. This is slander. And that's anti-God. And it's foolish. In order to move away from it. Proverbs 10.23, fools make sinning into a fun game. How would you recognize it? Well, they take sin and they turn it into something fun. Um, they play drinking games. They do this. They do that. They, they turn the exercise of evil into a game. Proverbs 20, verse 3. Fools are always fighting or quarreling. <laughs> Maybe not slandering, but it always seems like this person has an enemy. It always seems like this person has it out for another. It always seems like this person, they just go from drama to drama to drama to drama to drama to drama. To drama. You, I'm sure you have met the type. This is the works of a fool, the Bible says. Proverbs 29.11, fools are always angry about something. Fools are always angry about something. It's, it's just a constant brood of anger. Okay, these are these are points of how to recognize foolishness. It, okay, I want to be friends with God to the exclusion of anti-God. What does anti-God look like? It slanders, it quarrels, it's fighting, it's always angry about something. It uses religious talk for temptation. It's not teachable. In fact, there's a strong atheism in foolishness that needs to be avoided. It makes light of sin. It makes a game of sin, even though sin destroys people doesn't have an eternal perspective on anything. That's our second point. Wise people, God's people, friends of God, learn to recognize what is anti okay. Any questions about that? This was a mere sampling, by the way, of the book of Proverbs. It could have been much more exhaustive. Yes, ma'am. There's a famous back-to-back, two back-to-back proverbs that Solomon writes. I can't remember what number it is. But it says this, Answer a fool, answer not a fool according to his folly, why get yourself stripes? Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be condemned. And he puts them together. Because what he's trying to communicate is that as the believer, sometimes you have to recognize what chance of success your reviews will have. And if you're, let me paint an example. When my dad went to the, um, when my dad and I went to the college football game yesterday, right outside the stadium, there was a frat party. And uh, alcohol was flowing, and the music was loud, and the kids were dancing. Would that have been a time for me to stand up in the middle of them and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? <laughs> Probably not. That would, I don't know that that would have been a totally effective moment to try to confront folly. However, I get one of those same young men sitting next to me on the plane, and he's hung over, and things aren't going well in his life. That's when we, that, that has a chance of success, and that's when I can talk to the students. Um, those are just two examples, but what we're encouraged to do is size up the situation and say, are we throwing our pearls before swine, Solomon would say? 
or is there a reasonable chance this person will hear you? Um, now, even though they hear you, they still might scoff. But as you and I have talked about before, sometimes God wants us to say something so that that person will be without excuse. The thing that God wants is for his name to be glorified. The results are in his life. Does that answer your question? Others? Your question? Okay. Okay, point number three. When friends of God recognize anti-God, they run. They don't stop. They don't admire. When friends of God recognize anti-God, they run. Genesis 39.12, Joseph was serving in Potiphar's house. And he's a slave. And It says that Joseph made Potiphar and his wife so rich that the only thing they had to worry about was what they were going to eat. Are we, honey, are we going to go to this Michelin five-star restaurant or are we going to go to that Michelin five-star restaurant? Honey, I'm so torn. Should we have the pepper-crusted ribeye or should we have the lobster bisque? Oh, the choice is best. That's how rich Joseph made Potiphar and his wife. Bear in mind, I've never had lobster bisque, so I don't know if it's good or not. But it's always like high on restaurant bisque, or maybe it is good, I don't know. Did you know they actually take the carcass of the lobster and blend it up? The lobster I watched it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so when you go to Red Lobster, when you go over and you see the lobster in the cage, and you see that exoskeleton, mmm, bisque. <laughs> well, at any rate, he made them rich. And Mrs. Potiphar recognized who the real power was. And she wanted all of it for herself. And one day, she jumped Joseph and tried to force him to have sex with her. And Joseph just ran out of the house. And this is an example for us. He didn't, he didn't try to reason with her. He had already done that. He just left his coat in her hands and when fools, I'm sorry, when God's people recognize any form of the folly that we just mentioned, we don't entertain it, we don't sit down and watch it, we run to it. Number two, Proverbs 14.7, we're told to leave the presence of a fool. And in Proverbs 23.9, don't even speak in the presence. We are told, as I said before, to engage with fools when we think, when we're convinced there might be an opportunity for them to hear. But if we were to just add them up, the warnings against wasting our words on fools with the admonitions to confront a fool, be don't waste your words when by a landslide if we just tally them up. Also, this is one thing I would really encourage with your children. You know, there's a time 
for our children to be evangelists, to be out there in the world, confronting the world. But this is after an extended training period. Athletes don't get on the field until they're ready. To do so prematurely is dangerous, physically. And to put our children out there before they're ready. Now, will anybody ever be ready? No. But when they're young, I'm talking elementary, junior high years, even, I don't know, I don't have any children in the high school years yet, so I won't speak to that. But they're, they're just, they're in training now. And we need to be watchful for them and careful for them. Proverbs 13, I'm sorry, Romans 13.4 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So, all along, we're pushing off all that's anti-God. We're replacing it with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when anti-God comes at us, we run from it. And we work in the world, don't we? We live in the world, we work in the world, we see the world. We're forced to rub shoulders with the world. There's a huge difference between um, sort of surfing on top or making our livings and so forth and embracing. And it's all the difference. And what God is warning us against here today is that embrace. So, what about love? Let me answer this. I told you I was asking. So, what about love? Well, number one, God is our supreme love. And God's supreme love, I need a fancy word, is expulsive. It's expulsive. Okay. The Puritans called it the expulsive power of a new affection. Now, I would have used this illustration, whether my dad was here or not, but I'll use my dad as an illustration. He used to have a motorcycle. He loves motorcycles still. When he found out that my mom was expecting me, he had a new affection suddenly, a son on the way. And he sold his motorcycle to get a crib. There was something in his life. I won't, I'm not going to call a motorcycle anti-God, right? just an illustration. But all of a sudden now he had a new affection and with joy sold something out of his life for this new thing that he loved. Right? And so when we love God, quite naturally things start getting expelled out of our lives out of the replacement or the new point of love that we have. Okay. Um, when a young man meets a young lady and he is taken up in love, and he's just so enamored that she would love him back. Suddenly, things that he used to love start going out the window. He had a, he used to have a, a spool of wire, like, you know those uh, uncoiled, those, those big spools that they coil wire on? That was his coffee table. Well, he's going to have her and some friends over, and what does he do? He throws the spool out into the backyard and goes to Big Lots and buys a coffee table. Okay, because He's got this new affection, and he's got to get rid of the old. 
Benjamin's smiling. Did you do that, Benjamin? Not quite? Okay, but something similar? Okay. I may, I may have had a few things eject out of my car when I met Danielle, okay? <laughs> Expulsive power of new affection. Remember, so God is our supreme love. And when we love God supremely, other things just go. God loves unrepentant sinners from afar. God loves unrepentant sinners from afar. Psalm 138.15. God knows the haughty from afar. I teach my kids this song. Um, he knows the haughty from afar, but the haughty he knows from afar. And we go, afar. It's not very musical, but we're trying to illustrate the farness. And that's how God wants us to love the unrepentant sinner as well. Think of it like this. You've got a person drowning. You don't jump into the water and drown with them. You throw them a life preserver and drag them to safety. And this is what we do with fools and unrepentant sinners. We, we call out to them from the safe side. Come join us over here. That's wicked. When we love God supremely, good friends usually emerge, and bad friends usually just leave on their own. Um, Fools tend to just kind of glide away from us on their own, because they love their father. And when we start making decisions to follow the Lord, God usually follows up on that with other people who love. So what about love? Well, when we love God supremely, other things go away. We learn how to love sinners most effectively, not by joining them, but by calling out to them to come join us. And without doing violence to our friendships, the bad friendships that we have tend to just sort of dissipate. Whereas, when people really love the Lord, they tend to find other people who really love the Lord. So you won't be at a loss for relationships. I think the most important thing, though, is that when we love God supremely, we begin to think rightly about the unrepentant and their faith, and we start calling out for more urgently. Okay? God wants to be your friend. He really does. What an amazing privilege that is. But just like the groom stands at the altar, knows this is his bride and his bride alone, God wants to be our friend exclusively, to the exclusion of all that is in us. Does that make sense, everybody? All right, let's pray. Father, give us grace to know your mind. Help us to meditate well on what you mean by these words. Would you please uh, use this in our lives further and deepen our love for you. Thank you that you want to befriend us. And may we move closer to you as you move closer to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.